Welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're on WKXL AM and FM in Concord, New Hampshire, and now 101.9 in Manchester, New Hampshire. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. And if you're listening to this on your podcast device, please subscribe, like us, tell your friends about us, and share all about the show on social media. We're brought to you by the Capital Center for the Arts in Concord, New Hampshire, two great venues at ccanh.com. Take a look at the website and check out all the great shows. We are joined by a very special guest this morning, a friend of mine from Political Days, Senator Cindy Rosenwald from Nashua, New Hampshire. She served 14 years in the New Hampshire House of Representatives before being elected to the Senate in 2018. She has a record of working across the aisle to fight for a family-friendly economy that works for all of us here in New Hampshire. She is the deputy Democratic leader uh, in the New Hampshire Senate, serving on the Finance Committee and the Ways and Means Committee. So she, folks, she, she handles all the money. She's, she is the guru of money um, in the New Hampshire State Senate. Um, she has a, a degree from Harvard University. She has a master's degree from Riviere. And before she entered politics, she worked as a writing instructor at Riviere, as well as New Hampshire College, now Southern New Hampshire University, and the University of Massachusetts Lowell, where she eventually was made an adjunct professor. Senator Rosenwald, welcome to Capital Close-Up. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for so before we, before we before we launch into our our political issues, because there are a lot, there's a lot of politics to cover. And I, I'm just curious, talk a little bit about your career teaching writing. Um, how did that come about? Uh, what preceded your career teaching teaching writing? And uh, what did you learn from teaching writing? Well, I became a better writer <laughs> mm-hmm. while I was teaching writing because um, it was the first time that I ever remember looking at the different rhetorical modes of writing and particularly what makes an effective written argument. And the, the biggest takeaway um, from that was that you have to really understand your audience. You have to know what they know and what they want. And depending on who you're really trying to talk to, you'll structure your argument very differently. So if you're talking to people who already agree with you, you might use a very emotional argument. But if you're talking to people who you're trying to get to vote with you, you're probably going to be much more logical in your approach. The way I um, got into it was Riviere had a really good um, writing program for people who wanted to be teachers. It was really 
It was an MAT program for teaching English at the secondary level. It's not actually the degree I got, but I took most of those, almost all of those courses. And we learned how to, how to teach people hmm. what, what are really the, the key elements. And one thing I learned there that has stayed with me is that everybody has a story to tell and they really want to tell it. Hmm. Before I worked in advertising um, in New York, hmm. before I lived in New Hampshire. And again, oh. that's about stories Sure. And uh, audience and mm -hmm. convincing people and changing their attitudes about a product or service. So I think it's not that different mm -hmm. from teaching writing. Or and politics. In between, I worked <laughs> at Southern New Hampshire Medical Center, which was called Nashua Memorial Hospital when I worked there and I worked in the community relations department and I did a lot of writing there because we would write stories about new services, new doctors. We would write speeches. We would um, write, a, you know, a large um, brochure that we would mail out to the community a few times a year so. I did a lot of writing. It was always anonymous. I was always writing in other people's names and hearing their voices in my head as I read my own words. But again, it was audience and it was argument. You know, I, I, I it, it, it was a very good um, background for politics because yeah. storytelling in politics and let's say discussing issues, whether from a linear logical uh, perspective or from an emotional perspective or a combination of both is really part of the art of communicating uh, in, in politics. So, um, well, and you were an attorney, so argument yeah. was your your method right? persuasion, persuasion 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 and evidence with storytelling but exactly know? but you have to know your audience it's true it's it it is certainly true well fascinating background and uh, you of course succeeded uh senator betty lasky a longtime state senator from uh, new hampshire and you have been doing just a tremendous job holding up holding up the flag of what is right and good and um, working to protect the unprotected and and make keep New Hampshire a family friendly place. So I, I want to start with um, a controversial issue, not that all, you know, almost all issues these days are controversial. But uh, New Hampshire uh, was 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 a a bastion of uh, protection for women's reproductive rights. And even uh, Republicans traditionally in New Hampshire were generally considered moderate on, on women's reproductive rights and would um, make sure that people in New Hampshire knew that they were 
um, uh, pro-choice as as this as the word is used when I ran against Charlie Bass um, years ago um, for for a seat in the U.S. Congress. Um, he was known as a moderate Republican who was pro-choice. And for years and years, our governor, Chris Sununu, who looks like he's contemplating seriously a run for the U.S. Senate against our Senator Maggie Hassan, uh, declared that he was also pro-choice. But something happened, and something has happened in New Hampshire. Uh, the Republicans are now a radical right-wing anti-choice, anti-freedom uh, wing of, uh, well, maybe the whole party is not a wing, anti-choice, um, anti-freedom. And our governor seems to go right along with them on choice, including um, a new law uh, that uh, has provoked an awful lot of con controversy. Um, it bans abortions. It includes mandatory ultrasound. Um, and I believe it does not have exceptions um, for rape and incest. Uh, the governor seems to have, um, uh, uh, seems to be catering to the far right with a disregard for women. Uh, what's going on here? Well, let me start by saying that while Chris Sununu likes to say that he is pro-choice, his votes and his actions as governor and as executive counselor before he was governor indicate exactly the opposite. In fact, when he was on the executive council, he cast the deciding vote to defund Planned Parenthood, which provides not only uh, important life-saving cancer treatments to low-income people in New Hampshire, but contraception, testing for sexually transmitted diseases and the treatment for them, and also abortion care services. When he became governor um, in this, well, in this budget, he not only signed this really um, cruel 24-week abortion ban, which as you point out, has no exemption for rape or incest, or even uh, whether the fetus is sustainable. So a woman could find out when she's months pregnant that these kids, which I think is that she wants to have a baby. She's two thirds of the way through a pregnancy. If she finds out there's something wrong with that fetus that is going to prevent it from life, she is forced to carry that pregnancy for another three months. That is cruel and could lead to brief um, pain-filled suffering for that baby when it is eventually delivered. And the, it's been known for months that it could not survive. That is really cruel. So there are no exemptions for that. As you point out, there are uh, required ultrasounds and 
what we've learned is that in the earliest weeks of pregnancy, those ultrasounds need to be done vaginally. So it's an invasive procedure. It's not medically necessary. The insurance department jumped through hoops to say, oh, yes, we're not going to charge you for those ultrasounds. We're going to require the insurers to pay for them. But for people who don't have insurance, those ultrasounds can cost $2,000. That's a huge barrier to care for low-income women, or really any women who can, who can come up with an extra $2,000. Also, Chris and Nunu, um, in the same budget, defunded the Title X Family Planning Program, which serves uh, a total of about 15,000 low-income, mostly women in New Hampshire. This was ideological because the right wing doesn't like the idea that organizations that also do abortion services would get any public money. So in the end, what he defunded um, through the budget and the executive council will shut out 12,000 individuals in New Hampshire from cancer screenings, breast exams, pap smears to determine if, if there might be cervical cancer, testing for sexually transmitted diseases, which are epidemic in New Hampshire now, all because they're on a crusade against anybody getting abortion. And the ban that he signed also went so far as to threaten New Hampshire doctors with up to seven years in prison. You know, with it's shocking, with, it's really it's really shocking. And I, I'm I I know that uh, Democrats who are running for office are, are are there are ads on television pointing out some of this in kind of you know, in, in, in the way that ads can just really, really is headlines. But New Hampshire is a disturbing example of a national trend of regressive politics and the hypocrisy of the Republican Party. A lot of us, you know, a lot of people have been focused on what's happened in Texas, uh, because the Texas case has gone to the Supreme Court, uh, sued by the Justice Department for a ban, basically a ban on any abortions after six weeks with, with this notion of private enforcement against doctors, hospitals. As somebody theoretically in Texas who drives somebody to an abortion could be charged, uh, could be sued by a private party. It's just, it, it's, it is, we've reached back into um, the crazy train. Um, but here in New Hampshire, I, you know, I, 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 I sometimes think about the, the larger picture of the hypocrisy of the Republican Party. Here we are in a pandemic, a health crisis of unparalleled national proportion of uh, people dying, becoming infected, and most of the anti-mask 
anti-vaccination contingent, frankly, are Republicans. It's just that's just true. And and now most of the people who are dying appear to be those who are unvaccinated. And the cries from the anti-mask, anti-vax people are all about freedom. Keep your hands off my body. Keep your hands. You know, it's my body, my choice. I mean, that's what you hear from the anti-mask, anti-vax contingent. Yet, when it comes to a patriarchal domination of women, the Republican Party, including men and women, seem to forget the principles, the very principles that they apparently espouse when it comes to their not wanting to wear masks. The, hypo- the hypocrisy is, is stunning. It's, it's stunning. And, and I'm not sure that people are really kind of stepping back and talking about the, 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 the disgusting hypocrisy of the right when it comes to what choice and freedom mean. I think you're exactly right. This uh, whole discussion about uh, rights to individual choice and in reproductive care, choosing when to have children or to have children at all. There's no question, but this is an effort to control women because if if you allow women to um, achieve their full economic potential by determining their reproductive life, there is no question that they're going to have much more power in civic life than if you restrict access to contraception or abortion or any kind of health care. You're going to, in the end, exert economic power over women. And I think in the end, that's what this is about. You know, you're absolute. You're absolutely right that it's the only. It's the only conclusion that anybody can can come to, and you know it's luckily in New Hampshire, uh, women make up the majority of those who vote, and I think that in the coming elections in 2022. The governor is not going to be able to escape this issue. And, and you know, ele- elections have consequences. In New Hampshire, the last time around, uh, we turned from we're a purple state and we swung right at the state level for some for some for some reason. People, I guess, were scared about their taxes going up with the false with the false issue that family leave was really a tax. I mean, really, really crazy stuff, but it it caused a regression in our electorate. And I'm hoping that people see the true colors of the right and the Republicans and this governor who is uh, supporting, uh, espousing, um, enabling, and part of the right wing fringe that, um, and I say fringe because they're loud, but they're wrong. I want to move on to talk about health care. Um, because uh, I was I was in Congress and cast a vote for Obamacare uh, way back in 2010. It was my birthday. It was March 21, 2010. I was a young man then, and uh, seems like a long time ago when I 
took out my voting card and put it in that slot, knowing that I was probably ending my political career, which it turned out was true, uh, because people back then thought, you know, it was a question of, uh, uh, I don't want the government taking over my health care, but keep your darn hands off my Medicare, um, was was the call. And, uh, you know, there was a lot, a lot of confusion. Now, uh, despite Republican efforts to do away with the ACA, which has been under constant attack, um, uh, the ACA has survived. And we're talking about what might be done to expand um, health care in this country to improve uh, benefits uh, for both Medicare uh, and um, Medicaid. Um, and you're in the you're in the you're in the in the center of the battle about health care in New Hampshire. So I'd, I, I want to make sure we talk about Medicaid and where it's been and what's going on with it. But give us a little bit of your perspective um, uh, from inside the state house about uh, the views on health care and uh, how things are playing out here, including what expansion of the ACA could mean for New Hampshire. Well, let me first thank you for your vote to pass the Affordable Care Act. Um, I, I think we cannot overemphasize the importance of that law over the last 11 years since it was enacted in March of, 21, of 2010. The insurance reforms of the Affordable Care Act were really historic. It, um, what it did was do away with the most uh, egregious provisions that insurers had in place. It, immediately helped 100,000 people in New Hampshire go from uninsured to insured. And that was about half through healthcare.gov, the individual market, and half through the Medicaid expansion, which New Hampshire um, did quite early on. And I think um, 2014 is when that benefit began. There are currently 75,000 people in New Hampshire who are enrolled in the Medicaid expansion program. It's about a 50% increase from what it had been prior to the pandemic. For the first time through the Affordable Care Act, health insurance plans were required to cover treatment for substance use disorder. Um, we never had that requirement in New Hampshire. Also, for the first time, insurance plans were required to cover maternity services. Those two things are incredibly important. We want people to have babies. We want young families to live in New Hampshire. We want people to be able to access the treatment and recovery services they need if they are um, addicted to substances. For the first time also, your health insurance premiums could not be based on your health status or your gender. 
Women used to be charged more for insurance just based on their gender. They can't do that anymore. They can't eliminate you from coverage when you get sick. Think about that. You used to be able to pay your premiums every month. And then just when you got sick and needed coverages, you could be dropped from coverage no longer. Also the um, important preventive cancer screenings, let's say, and um, other important care must be covered with no cost contribution from the individual. That means there's no financial barrier to people getting annual mammograms or colonoscopies as recommended. Contraception must be covered without co-pays and uh, deductibles. These are, these are really incredible insurance reforms that remove the barriers to care for low-income people. New Hampshire has 300,000 Medicare beneficiaries. We're in we're a pretty rapidly aging state. It's among the highest percentage of the yeah. population enrolled in Medicare plans it's because amazing. of our aging population. Yep, the ACA closed the donut hole and I think it finally was closed last year. All of this is even more important in a pandemic when people have uh, lost jobs perhaps or had to leave work to care for family members. There is, during the pandemic, much uh, lower barriers to care for low-income people in New Hampshire, which is a significant part of the population. Right, and you know, New Hampshire had an important role in one provision of the ACA, which I don't mind. Uh, in fact, in fact, I, 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 I know I've talked about it before on the show, but when uh, I was campaigning for Congress, um, I met uh, the mother of Michelle, uh, who whose daughter Michelle was a senior at. Plymouth State College when she uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Her doctors told her, you have to leave school to get treatment, but she couldn't because at the time, if she had left school, she was on her parents' insurance policy, she'd left school for treatment, she would no longer have been eligible for what was then the exception to getting knocked off your, your parents' policy because she would no longer have been a full-time student and that was required. And so she would have had her treatment, she would have been able to rest and get her treatment, but she wouldn't have been able to have any insurance because she had a pre-existing condition. So it was, it was a catch-22 of monumental proportions. She stayed in school, she graduated, she died. And her mom undertook a campaign in the New Hampshire legislature to pass Michelle's law to make sure that that wouldn't happen again. And right. you were probably in the legislature when, when, when that came up, uh, just a heroic effort, a heroic effort. Um, and I'm, I, when I, I promised if I got to Congress, I'd make it federal law. And I got to Congress and we made it federal law. It was signed. I got a Republican co-sponsor. Those were the days, by the way, when you could find a Republican co-sponsor for something that made sense. And uh, President then George Bush signed it into, into law. And that was the basis 
for the provision in the Affordable Care Act that uh, children up to young adults up to the age of 26 um, uh, can stay on their parents' insurance policies. And I know that that has has been meaningful and and saved lives. And that's just, I mean, that's one small part of what's in um, what's in the ACA. Senator, why do Republicans want to kill the ACA? Why? Wh- what's what's that about? And then I want to turn um, uh, specifically to the issues of Medicaid, um, where it's been, where it is, and uh, what you've what you focused on. Great. Yeah. Well, I think um, the reason that some of them still want to kill the ACA is a it was um, a victory, a policy victory for Democrats, and also this fiction that the government should stay out of healthcare, which I am glad that irony is not dead totally because. Yeah. The government is the single biggest payer for health care, uh, somewhere, somewhere above 60% of all health care in the U.S. and in New Hampshire as well, between 60 and 65% is paid for by the government between Medicare, between the veterans. Mm-hmm. Uh, between we have a large veteran population the in the state. So Medicare, veterans, uh, Medicaid, a lot of that, you know, that that's all paid for with federal money. And Medicare itself is a completely federal program. And and by the way, I'll just add to that briefly, that the entire system of employer-based health care is actually a government subsidy because employers get to deduct the cost of any health care that they now provide. In other words, it's not it, it's deducted. So it's not coming in as any tax revenue. And the people who are getting the health care don't really don't have to include it on their income tax. So the government isn't getting any revenue there. It's subsidized by the entire system there is subsidized by the government. Correct. So it's another example of crazy hypocrisy. We're back on the crazy train, but let's leave that. Let's <laughs> leave that there for a moment. So, let's talk so Medicaid. yeah, under the ACA, um, New Hampshire was thankfully one of the states that participated in the Medicaid expansion uh, that the ACA provided. But it was not an easy road. Um, what? What was the story of of the Medicaid expansion and and where are we now with Medicaid? So um, Medicaid expansion was enacted under Governor Maggie Hassan. Um, We began the planning for it in 2012 or 13 and the benefit went live in the summer of 2014. It was a bipartisan solution, um, as it had to be because of the makeup of the legislature during those years. And in that term, the House had a Democratic majority, but the Senate had a Republican majority. So we had to do work that really is the the our best selves 
when we can do it is to leave our differences at the door, pull our chairs up to the table and find a way to get to yes. And Medicaid expansion um, had full Democratic support and it had enough Republican support to pass. I think the reasons that Republicans were willing to vote for it was it really represented a tremendous amount of our federal tax money coming back into New Hampshire. It was uh, going to help our state's 13 rural hospitals stay afloat because they would be seeing more patients who had insurance to cover the cost of care that they are obligated under federal law to provide. And um, it is our best tool for substance use disorder treatment. And it's um, very good for stability of providers. The hospitals really wanted us to enact this program because they understood that the hundreds of millions of federal dollars was going to lower the burden of uncompensated care, which has been referred to as a hidden tax. It's over $400 million a year of care that hospitals were providing but they were not getting any reimbursement for. Hmm. Medicaid is our, our state's biggest program. It's a partnership with the federal government. It's currently covering over 100,000 low and moderate income children. It provides care for frail, low income elderly. Most of the people who are living in nursing homes have Medicaid as their payer. People who have a developmental disability are covered mostly by Medicaid. Uh, Low-income pregnant women are uh, able to enroll in Medicaid. And now 75,000 low-income adults who don't have any other eligibility for Medicaid also are covered from that. It's a, a great program. I think we can make it better. Um, we have been working, and I've been working on this specifically to include a dental benefit. This has been a bipartisan effort in the Senate. It, um, I've sponsored the bill twice. I filed it again for the third time. I think the third time is the charm. <laughs> Let's time, hope so. It got through the legislature and Chris Nunu vetoed it. And why did he veto it? Well, he said he didn't know if we could afford it. Um, however, let me point out that in this budget, we're spending $10 million of state general funds to pay back investors who lost money in the FRM scandal. So we could afford this. We had a huge surplus in the budget that a Democratic legislature delivered in the previous two years. We had a really enormous surplus. 
we could afford this. Last year, uh, the House Republicans refused to put it in the budget. And we were only asking for $1.5 million. I'm hoping that this year is the charm. This is a benefit that will save us money in Medicaid in the long term. If people's oral care uh, gets attention, their overall health care will improve. So it will make, uh, make people able to be healthier. It will save us money. And it's an economic development tool. Because if you think about the working age adults who are on the Medicaid expansion, if they don't uh, have good oral care, if they've lost teeth, if they're sick because their um, oral health is, is so poor that they're in constant pain and they have mouth infections, it's gonna be very hard for them to get a good job that lifts them out of poverty and out of the Medicaid program. So you know, this is just a win, win, win all the way around. It seems like such an obvious, such an obvious thing. And to hear people talk about the cost of such a program, as opposed to understanding it as an investment in better health, uh, more productive workforce, um, is 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 one of those delusions. It's a semantic delusion that um, is often used to um, preserve some, some, I, I can't, I, I can never figure out whether it's preserving what, what it, I, I just can't figure, I'm speechless. I can never figure out what it's about, especially when you say that the, the, the investment the beginning investment in this program would be one and a half million dollars. That is a pittance in the New Hampshire budget, which is a biennial budget that is counted in the billions. And an right. investment in oral health, as you know, and as you fought for, uh, the economic and social benefits of preventative dental care are, are just manifest and extraordinary. It's another example of the right uh, adhering to some ideologic, ide you know, ideologic argument um, or position um, uh, that that just doesn't make sense. You know, it it br it brings to mind for me the history of Medicaid expansion, in which a, when it first came in, there was a privatized version, um, uh, which you, in New Hampshire used Medicaid to subsidize uh, private uh, coverage. And that seemed purely political, as did the requirement that Medicaid recipients, that, that there was a work requirement in order for Medicaid recipients to have health care. What, what was that? What was that about? And that eventually took, it, it took a federal court to overturn uh, those work requirements. Um, my, you know, I can just say my experience, and I, I wasn't uh, when I was in Congress. Uh, it was as if the the people on the right that I was dealing with thought that all poor people were lazy, and anybody of lower income was there for by by their own by their own choice, 
and that you had to force people to work in order to receive health care. I don't understand it. Can you help me? Well, first of all, let me say that um, the majority of individuals who are on the Medicaid expansion in New Hampshire already work or are full-time students. So we are not talking about people who just refuse to work. I also want to say that even though the courts have said that the work requirement is not allowable because it does not further the goals of Medicaid, which is really to improve the health of that population. Chris Sununu still has the attorney general fighting on the side of that lawsuit to implement the work requirements. So we are still investing state resources for a program that the courts have said is not okay and that the um, federal administration has actually withdrawn our waiver. So we don't even have the waiver for the work requirement anymore. And yet Governor Sununu is still directing state resources to be arguing for a work requirement. There is data showing that having a work requirement when a few states did it for a little while, it uh, neither increases the amount of work that people do nor furthers the health goals of the Medicaid program. Governor Sununu actually had state employees out ringing doorbells in places like Nashua looking for um, people who might be enrolled in the Medicaid expansion, telling them they might have to uh, participate in the work requirement. So state employees from Health and Human Services and the Department of Employment Security, instead of doing the work that the legislature appropriated money for them to do, were out ringing doorbells looking for people who might be required to participate in the work requirement. Their success rate was extraordinarily low. And what it showed is that um, people are not home during the day because they're working and they're right. not answering their phones because the state phone calls come through with a number hidden and nobody answers the phone if they don't see a number that they recognize. This oh, was man. just the total reckless waste of hundreds of thousands of dollars on the part of Sununu. Senator, we're going to have to leave it there. And it's probably a good place to leave it because <laughs> uh, we're going to hope that uh, folks are out ringing doorbells, getting uh, folks out to vote in the midterms to uh, uh, turn New Hampshire back to uh, uh, back to blue uh, because uh, we need to make progress in this country, not stop progress. I'm your host, Paul Hodes. We're on Capitol Close Up on WKXLAM and FM and now in Manchester, New Hampshire. Thanks to Senator Cindy Rosenwald for joining us. A great conversation. We'll be back next week with more Capitol Close Up. <laughs>